This is Open House, presented by the BC Real Estate Association. On this episode, we dive into the big announcement from the BC government addressing the hot market and changes coming to the way real estate transactions are conducted in BC. Hi and welcome back to Open House by BCREA. I'm Shahid Devji. Thanks for joining us. This episode was recorded on November 23rd, 2021. And this will be our last episode of the year as we'll be off during the winter holiday period before we get going in 2022. If you listened to our last episode in October, you will have heard that we had been planning to talk more about the BCREA standard forms release that happened this month. But as you probably heard, the BC government made a pretty significant announcement earlier this month with respect to real estate. Of course, I'm talking about the announcement that next spring the government will be introducing measures including a cooling off period in real estate resale transactions in BC. And in its consultation with the sector, which is forthcoming, it will also be examining other measures to address some trends that it's been seeing throughout the hot market. So in light of that news, we're going to explore this topic on this episode since we've heard from many of you who are concerned as BCREA is on this issue. That means we're not talking about standard forms today, but the good news is that BCREA is hosting a free one-hour virtual Q&A session for realtors to get answers to any questions you might have about the new and revised standard forms and clauses, and that's happening on December 2nd, 2021. So if you're listening to this before then, go ahead and register for that by visiting BCREA's website and navigating to the standard forms page. We also have a link to that registration in the show description here. So with all that said, on this episode, we'll be looking at what a cooling off period is, looking at the potential impact on the real estate sector in BC, and then we'll explore the topic of what's being referred to as blind bidding. We have several guests joining us to help paint a picture of it. First, Dr. Paul Harrison will join us to talk about cooling off periods and his research into their effectiveness on changing consumer behavior. We'll then talk to BCREA Chief Economist Brendan Ogmanson, whose team has done some initial analysis and projections around the potential impact of a cooling off period on BC's housing market. And finally, Mike Moffitt joins us to talk about blind bidding. He's an assistant professor at Western University's renowned Ivy School of Business and is also the author of the Smart Prosperity Institute's recent report looking into banning blind bidding and the potential impact on real estate prices. So we've got a full slate and I thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, let's get into our future conversations. Since early in the COVID-19 pandemic and peaking in early 2021, Canada and BC's housing market specifically has experienced unprecedented conditions, with prices quickly escalating thanks to a perfect storm of record low housing inventory and record low interest rates, increased household savings, and an increased need, desire, and ability to work at home. This has led to demand outpacing supply with many buyers left frustrated and on the outside looking in. With that frustration has come an intensified focus on the housing market from everyone from homeowners, prospective buyers, media and government officials. And along with that have come questions and calls for something to happen. The Liberals in the federal election campaign leading up to re-election have promised a Home Buyer's Bill of Rights, which, among other things, includes a promise to ban what is being called blind bidding or essentially changing the way the offer process works in a transaction. 
While here in B.C., the provincial government has taken its lead from its federal counterparts and in November announced its intent to introduce consumer protection measures, including a cooling-off period next spring. It added it will also be looking at banning blind bidding and exploring mandatory home inspections and the use of subject-free offers. These announcements, without many details or full-sector consultation as of yet, have left many of you asking questions. What can you expect? How will this impact you and your clients? And will what's being proposed actually change behavior or slow price growth? Or will it bring unintended consequences? That's what we're exploring on today's show, and to kick things off, we welcome Dr. Paul Harrison, who is a senior lecturer at Deakin University in Australia's BL Business School, and who has researched cooling off periods generally and their impact on consumer behavior. Dr. Harrison, thanks for joining us today, or, or should I say good day? Or, or <laughs> no, should you shouldn't. Or should, should I not? <laughs> no. <laughs> In the right. same way that we don't drink Fosters and we don't have kangaroos as pets. Okay, fine. <laughs> Sounds good. So, um, you know, we, we were talking offline just a, a bit about the context of, of our conversation and, and you being uh, on the other side of the world, so to speak. Um, you know, when this announcement came down from, from BC's provincial government, there weren't many details uh, regarding the cooling off period um, that they will be implementing. And um, I'm, I'm hoping you can help our listeners uh, who are mainly realtors in BC generally understand what a, a cooling off period is because um, we don't have a lot of details and generally what the intent is behind them because you've done some research into this. Yeah, so in Australia, we have cooling off periods for a whole range of, I guess, what you'd call contractual uh, exchanges. And generally speaking, it's about protecting consumers who may have been in the past or in the process of sales have been influenced to buy something that perhaps they didn't want to buy. And they've been around for a while. Um, A lot of the research that I did has been in things like uh, contracts around Uh, finances, credit, uh, those kinds of things. But I can see any situation where a person, where the the purchase process is highly emotional, um, people get highly involved, that you actually do need time to to fully understand whether you have made the right choice. And, And I think real estate is probably the most expensive and emotionally invested Um, purchase many people will make in their lives. Uh, Therefore, it's going to be highly emotional. Therefore, they're going to feel under pressure. Real estate is a really interesting one because, you know, when people inspect a house, they're already investing in it. And the research that I was looking at was this idea of the, the psychological factors as opposed to perhaps what we might call the more concrete transactional factors, the psychological factors that go into um, how people make purchases and, uh, you know, the degree to which um, their emotions influence that. Yeah, that's right. And, and you, you've been, been speaking about emotion. And, and certainly, as we've seen over the past 18 months in, in, in our housing market here, um, in, in this type of market where there's a lot of pressure on buyers, uh, some buyers have felt like they've needed to make decisions emotionally and, and not necessarily, you know, with due process and 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 that's certainly um some reasoning behind you know something like a, a cooling off period but but thank thank you for the explanation generally and, and now that we have a 
baseline. You talked about the research you've done, um, you know, partly into the effectiveness of cooling off periods, but then, uh, of course, other ways to to uh, address that. C- can you talk a little bit about the research and, and specifically what you found around the effectiveness of, of cooling off periods on kind of changing consumer behavior? We have this bias towards once we own something or once we feel like we own something, we find we, we actually put more value on it. So we find it much harder to give up. There's also another bias called the status quo bias, which is basically we like once we have decided to do something, we like to stick with it. We like to hold on to it. And another one, which and these all fit together called consistency theory, which basically we like to also tell ourselves that our decisions are consistent with our our attitudes and our behaviour. And all of these things come together. And so, you know, because of the way my brain works, I, I looked at these things and I thought, well, clearly these help us to explain something. And so what we did is we said, well, how would we test this idea of whether cooling off actually leads people to cooling off? I'd done some research about 10 years ago, and it was more qualitative research where I spoke to families who'd had a salesperson come to their home, um, form a, they formed a social relationship, you know, a personal relationship with this salesperson. So there's another psychological thing here, which is, you know, I feel like I can trust you. Um, and, and what happened was that then hardly anybody, even when they knew that they'd made a bad choice, felt that they could take advantage of the cooling off period. Part of it was... Um, that they'd form this personal relationship with a salesperson. And they thought, well, you know, he or she is a lovely person. I don't want to disappoint them. And so we're muddying the waters in any sales process. We're muddying the waters between the personal and the professional. So the research itself was saying, okay, so this is the regime that exists in Australia right now. People sign a contract. They decide that they want to buy this thing, whatever it might be. And in, in many circumstances, then they signed it. They've often handed over money. So again, we've taken even more possession or a deposit or something like that. So they've taken even more possession because they feel like this consistency theory says that once I hand over money, um, I'm also committing to the idea that this is a good decision. All humans have egos. And so we're constantly protecting our ego. Does cooling off work? And Josh Newton, who's a professor at Deakin and I, we kind of said, well, Let's see if we can devise an experiment that tests whether cooling off works in a small context um, or alternatively, is there an alternative way? And I'm happy to talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. I guess the bottom line was, and I'm happy to talk even about the experiment, was that um, across the board, what we found was even for small purchases, cooling off doesn't work. For the most part, at a statistically significant level, um, all of the people who are in our uh, study didn't really take advantage of the cooling off period, even when they knew that they might miss out on, you know, or they, they might have made a bad decision. And so that was tested. And then we kind of, the second part of the experiment was then, well, what's an alternative way? And, you know, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to go into that as well. Right. Uh, yeah, we will get into that. Before we do, I, I just wanted to speak to some of the reasoning that you gave there. I found it interesting that you talked about relationships and, you know, the, the realtor uh, client relationship is such a big part of, you know, a real estate transaction. So I can see how that can play a, a factor in, uh, you know, not necessarily wanting to renege on a, on a contract. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think another factor here in, in a real estate transaction is the relationship between, um, the purchaser and 
and the house and the property that yes. they're buying, right? Uh, and so, you know, despite, um, and of course, this is just my opinion and not not based in research or science, but, um, you know, despite there being a better deal on the table somewhere else, if it's the first contract you sign and you have this emotional connection to a house, you, you, you might not um, take the better deal, right? I think I think that's exactly right. And I, do, again, as, uh, you know, a sample of one, me, um, I remember when my partner and I walked into the house that we currently live in, 20 years ago, and um, I'm a really bad um, real estate agent's <laughs> customer. I buy something and I stick with it. Um, but one of the things was that the heater was on and it was the middle of winter and it was suddenly it was like, oh, this is where I want to live. And I think that's the thing is that even me who does research in this area s- still can be affected by all of these biases. Right. And so what I'm hearing is that it's it's not a slam dunk to borrow a sports term that a cooling off period will will change behavior just just because there is the option to. And um, you talked about um, exploring alternative um, methods and, and instead of a cooling off period. And, and and so what I was reading is that that's an opt in clause. Can you tell me more about that? The opt in cause or the opt in concept or the opt in clause is basically that you give people an opportunity to basically a second time say yes this is what I want but before they take ownership so it works in two parts um it it requires psychological resources to make a decision so asking them to sign something when they're emotionally engaged with it means that they're probably not making what you might call a a rational decision it's mostly emotional and we know from all the research that's being done on human behavior that nearly all our decisions are emotional it's only the decisions that uh, require very small calculations that become rational where we use this kind of big, heavy prefrontal cortex, the, the part of the brain that does the thinking. And it's hard for people to hear that. It's hard. I, I talk to regulators and legislators and politicians and I say, you know, the bottom line is that most of your decision-making is emotional and then you have this rational part of your brain that comes along and says, you've made the right decision. So the opt-in clause gives people time. So what we've what we kind of suggested and what we wanted to test was how do we remove those biases the you know the consistency bias the endowment effect how do we remove that at least a little bit when this is again the thing with human behavior you can't make things perfect so you say how do we remove some of that what we do is that we say when you sign a contract you don't own the product just yet and then you've got a period of time Um, sometimes 24, 48, sometimes, you know, 72 hours where you then have to confirm that. So you're not saying I have to withdraw from it because there's another interesting kind of principle in in psychology, which is that this idea that um, once I actually, even if I agree with something, if I accept the context of a conversation, I'm already, I have to undo that. It's not like, every conversation is equally weighted. It basically means if I agree with you, for me to disagree with you requires huge resources and me to say I'm a bad bad decision maker if I start to disagree. So the whole idea is you're given the opportunity to say I'm interested, you know, whatever it is, the product's taken off the market for a period of time and then the customer opts in or confirms that agreement sometime later after first signing the agreement, but they don't hand over any money they don't take possession, Um, they don't, as much as possible, you remove that emotional connection. There's two parts to that as well. Um, The critical bit is that it's up to the consumer to opt in. 
It's not up to the vendor or the salesperson to contact them and say, hey, do you still want to opt in? Because again, there's an element of pressure there. And that takes, you know, to some degree, it takes off that opportunity for the, the magic of sales for people to go, you know, I'm really good at sales. I can get a person to buy it. But I think what it does is it forces businesses to target the right consumers. It makes them design better promotion and advertising and marketing materials. The process becomes more honest because it's saying, I acknowledge that I have all sorts of emotional slash psychological power um, and it doesn't rely on high-pressure sales techniques to, to get people to buy things. And I don't know what it's like in Canada, but, you know, real estate has a pretty poor reputation in Australia. And I just think, you know, if, if you're in real estate, I know people who are realtors. Um, they're, they're lovely people and they're fighting back against, you know, I don't know if it's the same um, phrase that you use in Canada, but cowboy sellers, you know, people who just basically go in all guns blazing kind of thing and just say, please buy something. So I think it's actually a good thing to say, we're going to give you an opportunity to really think about that. It might slow the process by 24 or 48 hours, but you're going to get the right customer. You're going to refine your business model. It's actually a, a much better way to sell things than the old high pressure selling. Right. Yeah. BC has been called the Wild West once or twice. So <laughs> right. um, we've definitely heard that before. Well, this is all, you know, great food for thought and, and um, certainly moving into the new year in the spring when when we're expected to see this cooling off period come into effect. Um, I'm sure we'll be hearing more about what it'll look like and and if maybe something like the opt-in clause will be a part of that framework. So, um, no, I appreciate you uh, you joining us and, and setting the stage for the rest of our conversation here. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Well, look, I'm, I'm always available to legislators and to businesses <laughs> to help them to understand human yes. behavior. And I think that's the thing is that I'm passionate about understanding and I don't think we should be afraid of knowledge. I think that's the thing is that we all benefit from understanding something more deeply. So, um, yes, you know, I, I don't think people should be afraid of giving consumers um, better options because in the end, everybody benefits. Right. Well, this has been quite insightful. I'm sure our listeners have appreciated your expertise and I certainly appreciate you spending time with us and making the time difference work uh, to boot. So uh, thank you. And, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Shahid. Thanks again to Dr. Harrison for that insight from Down Under. So cooling off periods, they're meant to give consumers a chance to reflect on what could be a decision made based on emotion and, and the fear of missing out, which may lead to regret. We've heard whether these types of policies generally lead to buyers changing their minds. So let's talk now about their potential impact on BC's real estate market. As we've heard from the government, without broad consultation from the sector, a cooling off period is coming. So to share his initial analysis, I now welcome back to the show BCREA Chief Economist Brendan Ogmanson. Hey, Brendan, nice to chat with you again. Great to be here. Okay, so let's get right into it. We, we don't have a lot of details, but we know that some sort of cooling off period is likely to be coming. And you and your team have crunched some numbers in the aftermath of this announcement. What were you looking at specifically? So our analysis was was an extension uh, of some prior research that our department did in collaboration with uh, with our colleague at, at RevGV uh, over the summer. Uh, that research we used a model that we that was developed at the U.S. Federal Reserve that um, allows us to estimate total demand in the market. So 
you know, usually when we talk about demand, sometimes we, we reference sales, but sales are really only like the one successful offer. They don't measure all of the other potential buyers that are in the market. Uh, so, so using this model, we allow, allows us to, you know, with some assumptions uh, to estimate how much, how many total buyers there are uh, in the market. And what we found was uh, that at the peak of the market, there were like three buyers for every seller. Uh, and in some cases, like Victoria, it was like nine to one you know, in buyers to seller ratio. Uh, so using that model, which allows us to kind of estimate total buyers, we can make some kind of tweaks uh, and use that then to, to estimate what might happen uh, if we had the ability to make a bunch of different kind of costless offers. That's right. So, you know, the cooling off period, as, as we've explained in our, our previous interviews here, would essentially, you know, give people the option to... Uh, I guess make an offer and um, then renege that offer and without potentially without penalty or with minimal penalty. We don't know. Details aren't there. But um, you know what they could also do is put multiple offers on multiple properties, which they could do now. But um, if those offers are all accepted, then you're buying two, three houses. So it's not likely to happen. But it's more likely to happen potentially if they can pull pull back on those offers. Um, without the penalty of actually buying the house, right? And so that's kind of what you're looking at: increased offers. So, what what were your uh, what were your findings? What 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 are some some of the numbers that you found? Right. So, as you said, if you now have the ability to withdraw an offer without penalty, you know your your best strategy is to make a lot of offers, especially in a market like this, a lot of offers on on different different homes. Clearly, if that's happening, that's going to put upward pressure. Uh, on prices. So in our in the model that we had developed, you know, you know we, we make the assumption that one buyer, so one, you know, one uh, buyer out in the market is equal to one offer. If now say offers increase by 10%, uh, we estimated that that would increase prices by 2%. If we had some combination of offers increasing 10% and uh, because of increased risk or uncertainty for sellers that they withdraw uh, listings, so listings fall by 5% as well, then we could see prices increase about 3%. So 2 to 3% doesn't sound like a lot. That's on top of the large gains we're already seeing because of market conditions. And that's an important part of our, our, our findings as well. If this policy was, was implemented in kind of a normal, healthy market, it would put a little bit of upper pressure on prices. So I think we estimated you know, like half a percent or something. So something that could easily be absorbed, but we're in a market with record low listings. And it's just, and so it just further inflames uh, already very competitive uh, uh, market circumstances. Yeah, that's right. And, and you're kind of looking at, you know, a situation where demand uh, would increase, you know, a buyer is putting in more than one offer and in a fairly conservative at, you know, a 10% increase, right? Well, it's, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's sort of like the demand hasn't changed as the ability, it's sort of been amplified, yeah. right? So you still have one buyer, but now they can make three or four costless uh, offers. Yeah, and, and I can probably guess your answer here, but like how important it is, is it for government to, to look at these types of unintended consequences and sort of the economic side of things and the impact on the market when creating a policy like this is is there a way to kind of predict these unintended outcomes like you've done it here in this case but how, what are the other unintended outcomes and is is it uh, is it easy to predict and 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 look at in terms of the analysis right like most importantly like anytime policy decisions are being made there should be robust consultation so that these unintended consequences come to light before they become actual consequences, right? So, you know, in this case, 
best thing to do is consult with the people who deal with these the, you know these issues every single day and that and that's realtors so you know for these types of, of policy decisions you know yes talk to economists talk to to other uh, analysts in the market but talk to realtors realtors deal with all of these issues all the time and know all the nuances um so that that's sort of the most important part we're talking about this particular set of policies consult with the people who do this every day yeah that's right so this in- intervention is focused, you know, specifically on changing consumer behavior within a real estate transaction, right? Um, giving them time to withdraw their offer, and by extension, slowing that price growth that results from these these offers that are very competitive and, and often maybe too high or, or whatever, done in haste, emotionally, is what we've talked about with our previous guest. But as you've pointed out, uh, that could also come with these negative consequences. So. Um, what else should government be looking at if it wants to decrease the acceleration of prices? If if what they're looking at does come with these negative consequences, so you know all of these issues that we're seeing in the market are just symptoms of extremely low supply. We're at a level of listings that we, we've never is is at a historical low. We've never seen listings this low, and yes, we had record-setting demand earlier in the year. Uh, but that demand was hitting a market with a very low level of listings. So, you know, at BCREA, we've been talking about increasing supply for a really long time, you know, and recognizing that demand can change very quickly, but supply is fixed in the short run. So to get ahead of that problem, I mean, the problem we're facing, we should have been aggressively expanding housing supply like five to 10 years ago. You know, instead, We've tried to dampen demand with a, you know, over a dozen provincial and federal policies, uh, which have had at best short-term impacts. So unfortunately, there's no policy lever to pull to get people to list their homes. Uh, usually rising prices are a pretty good incentive for people to sell their homes uh, in, in, in kind of good economic conditions. Um, but it's just not happening at nearly the rate we need to see. So we're at a level of active listings of total inventory that's going to take probably multiple years to fix, to get back to, to normal levels. The best thing we can do then is not further delay or you know, further you know, uh, um, exacerbate the supply problem by not moving now and expanding the housing stock quickly. We need to build more housing, provide people with more choice so that they can sell their homes. They're not you know, feeling like, well, I would sell my home, but where am I going to go? We need to expand choice. And the only way we can do that is to really build uh, as much as we can, you know, find whatever policies we can to get supply to the market a little faster. Right. Well, you know, Vancouver is and in the lower mainland and BC generally has been a, uh, you know, a hotbed in terms of people wanting to live here and, and demand is always here. And like you're saying, um, you know, one way to satisfy and the best way to satisfy demand is is supply. So we'll see uh, what happens in terms of these specific measures that have been announced as we uh, as we enter the new year and, and get more details about them. And, and I'm sure as we get more details, we'll be looking to you for your analysis once again. So thanks again for joining us. And, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Anytime. As always, great insight and analysis from Brendan. And as we've heard, a cooling off period seemingly addresses one specific issue of public protection in favor of the buyers. But with factors influencing the real estate market being so intricate and nuanced, without careful consideration, there may be unintended consequences that have negative impacts on the market and both buyers and sellers. And that's not only true with cooling off periods, but also with other market interventions that may be identified as ways to protect the consumer 
in one way, in the case of cooling off periods, as we've heard, by maybe taking the emotion out of a decision, and in another when it comes to banning blind bidding by slowing price growth. Joining us now to talk about a potential ban on blind bidding, I'd like to welcome Mike Moffitt to the show. He's a professor at the Ivy School of Business at Western University, and he recently authored a report commissioned by the Canadian Real Estate Association and published by the Smart Prosperity Institute, exploring whether blind bidding and banning blind bidding will slow real estate price growth. Hi, Mike. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. All right. So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the report that you've done for uh, the, the you know Smart Prosperity Institute and, and the Canadian Real Estate Association and really what you were looking to do, what you were looking into, and then we can get into to specifics. Yeah. So we, uh, with generous support from the Canadian Real Estate Association, we simply wanted to answer the question, what impact would banning blind bidding have on, on home prices? So we don't look at, there's a, a lot of you know reasons that you might be sort of for or against a ban, and we don't take a position on that. We just treated this as sort of an empirical question that uh, we know we, we've heard uh, federally, uh, the, the liberals talk about potentially banning it. We're, we're hearing uh, hearing this at, at provincial levels as well. And it's usually justified on the pr- grounds of price. But we've never seen, I've never heard a politician give evidence uh, towards this claim that sort of just, you know, think it's going to happen. Okay, if we ban this, uh, it's going to lead to lower prices. And we wanted to know simply, you know, what is the evidence? Uh, is Would banning blind bidding lead to lower prices? Right. And, and when we, we talk about, um, you know, lower prices, you know, we're, we're talking about you know, in any given transaction, um, the price can get you know, driven up quite quickly, you know, when, and this is the assumption, when um, the other offers don't know what other parties are offering, right? And, and so opening up those offer numbers might slow that price growth. Am, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. So that's that's the sort of theory uh, behind it. Uh, so there's one theory that, that basically said it's called the kind of the bid gap ask, or what's the difference between the highest and the, the second highest bidder? And the sort of theory goes, if you've got one bidder bidding 800 and another bidding 810, and the third bidder doesn't know that, they might bid something outrageous like 950, and they might have uh, won it for, for a lesser amount. So that's the kind of theory behind that. Uh, and naturally, sort of people have arguments on, on the other side or, or arguments to get that saying, well, okay, yes, maybe if this is open, that third bidder would have bid 820. But then that first bidder would have come along and raised their bid to 840 or 850. So, uh, you know, you've got arguments on sort of both sides and you've got this sort of third argument that goes, none of this really matters. It's all sort of, a, you know, it's all driven by supply and demand and whether or not you open this or don't open this, it doesn't doesn't make a difference. So, you know, there's a bunch of theories on all sides and we wanted to say, okay, you know, everybody's got their opinion about this, but what does the actual data and evidence show? All right, so why don't we get into that? What, in terms of you know data and evidence, what what did you look at? Yeah, so basically, we we did this sort of a, a meta study or sort of study of studies. So we we basically looked at uh, different either real estate markets or vacant land markets uh, across Canada or across the world, 
and seeing what reports have come out in the last peer-reviewed reports have come out in the last 30 to 35 years. And unfortunately, we could only find eight. We could only find eight peer-reviewed studies that, that looked at this. And they all basically had the same methodology. So for instance, one of these reports uh, looked at a, a set of condos in New Jersey in the early 1990s. And some of the condos uh, were sold via a sort of open auction type process. You know, think of kind of like a, an in-person auction where everything is just sort of very transparent. And some of them were sold um, some of them were sold just by sort of standard, you know, blind bidding or, or whatever you want to call it process. So right. we found eight of these uh, reports globally uh, that, you know, looked at basically apples to apples type comparisons, try to make it sort of any, uh, you know, make any sort of adjustments if there were any sort of slight differences, but compare them. And we found six reports that actually suggest that having an open process leads to higher prices. So the exact opposite. So we looked at, there were uh, real estate sales in Ireland, some, some in New Zealand, a report in Australia, uh, a report on uh, vacant land or empty land in Singapore. So we found six of the eight studies said that actually opening things up would lead to higher prices. But we did find two older American studies uh, that said actually having a blind uh, process leads to higher prices. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not conclusive. It is only eight studies. But one difference between the two is that the two that we did find that suggest banning blind bidding uh, would lead to higher prices or banning blind bidding would lead to lower prices. Um, both of those were looking at fairly cold real estate markets. Right. So, which is not the case that we have in Ontario or BC or, or, or anywhere else. So there seems to be, you know, if we're trying to align this, there's say actually, you know what, that opening this up and, and having a very transparent process actually makes prices higher. And it makes it higher because of typical sort of auction type frenzy. Right. You, anybody who's go to an in-person auction or anybody who's ever tried to buy something on eBay, you see those prices in real time go up and up and up and up. And you're like, wow, OK, this must be this must be worth a lot. Uh, there's so much sort of demand out there. So actually adding a layer of transparency in a hot market can actually cause auction frenzy and lead to prices being higher than they otherwise would. And, and frankly, that was not something I was expecting to find when we started this research. My, you know, if I had to bet $20 on this, I would have guessed that we would have found that it really doesn't make a difference one way or another. Turns out that might not be the case. And, and in fact, opening things up could in fact lead to even higher prices when a market is as hot as British Columbia or, or Ontario's is right now. Yeah, and and uh, it's interesting that you should mention that uh, auction style um, process. Uh, you know, earlier in our show, we we talked to uh, Dr. Paul Harrison, who's done some research on consumer behavior and specifically on cooling off periods, which is another measure that's being explored here in BC. And you know, what he was saying was that um, psychology plays such a big part in you know the the transaction, right? in the reasoning behind a transaction. And it sounds like that's kind of what you were saying there with the the auction when when you see when you see others bidding um you start to change your mind about maybe the value and and decide that you can bid a little bit higher right so it's it's i guess it's not cut and dry and it's not not just science um 
But, uh, well, I guess psychology is science, but uh, not just one type of science, right? Not just math. <laughs> it's not just math. You know, yeah. the, the social sciences play a role. And again, anybody who's ever participated in an auction knows this. Uh, you go to an auction, you, you see some good uh, that, that you like, and you go, okay, I'm not going to bid more than $100 on it. And then the prices go up. And somebody bids 105, and you're just like, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lose this over 10 bucks. I'm gonna bid 110. Right. And you see the same thing in open processes. And I should point out that the open process isn't necessarily what we think of as an auction. All right. So, so in Sweden, for instance, uh, that that is essentially doesn't allow blind bidding. Uh, how the process works is that you sort of register, say, okay, I want to bid on this this house. And then as soon as somebody bids uh, all the sort of relevant details of that bid, you actually get it by a text message. Mm-hmm. And, but you still see that same sort of process. Like imagine you're out, you're out and so you go, okay, you, you see this text message come in and somebody's outbid you by $10,000. You're not going to be like, oh, well, that, that's fine. You're going to be like, no, I'm not going to let this guy outbid me for 10000 So I'm going to bid again. So, so again, even if you have a process that that's open, that looks a lot like the Canadian process, which the Swedish process does, you still get this sort of auction frenzy going on. People going, oh, it's just a few dollars more. It's a few dollars more. And it keeps climbing up and up and up. And I should point out that Sweden, like Canada, has actually got during the pandemic some of the fastest, uh, you know, uh, house price growth in the world. So you see markets like like Sweden that are designed to be uh, open by default, and other markets like Australia and New Zealand that allow or have a lot more sort of auction style processes, where like literally people are on the front lawn sort of yelling out prices. Those are some of the hottest markets in the world. So clearly, allowing or requiring openness doesn't necessarily get you low prices. Right. So in, in you know after doing the research and and kind of looking at all these different uh, peer reviewed studies and and I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, because because the the peer reviewed part is important uh, in that it is kind of um you know vetted right from by professionals um and looking at different markets and and uh, different parts of the world is there anything that you were able to to glean in terms of you know what when considering something like ending the quote unquote blind bidding um process you know whether it's uh, in BC or Ontario or wherever it is in Canada specifically that you would suggest governments uh, consider when considering this specific measure? Like what stood out to you there? Is is it the fact that um, really it depends on the market? It uh, depends on, you know, consumer you know, psychology? What, what are the kind of the key factors that governments should consider when crafting this uh, policy? Yeah, well, I, I think that's just it. It's, it's just, it goes back to, to market psychology. And if you're not changing the underlying market dynamics and you're not changing the underlying market psychology, just allowing for, for more transparency isn't going to affect price, or at least isn't going to affect prices the way you think it would. It might actually do right. uh, do, do, do the opposite. And I should point out that the, 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 the sort of increase isn't a massive increase, but you know it's going in the opposite direction yeah. of, uh, of what governments expect. So, you know, whether or not they should, you know, ban blind bidding, you know, there's this sort of nexus between uh, transparency and privacy, because obviously there is a privacy component to this, right? That if you're, you know, you're, you're letting everybody know what you're sort of, you know, other bidders know what you're bidding and the sort of details of your bid, you know, that's some private information and that might 
um, be sort of wary to people. So yeah, our our view is like, look, if you want to if you want to slow price growth, you have to deal with the underlying supply and de- uh, demand dynamics. Just making the bids open or close doesn't really change the underlying dynamics. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well, this has been super insightful for me, and uh, and I'm sure our, our listeners have uh, have benefited as well. Is there anything else you wanted to add on the topic? No, I think that's it. I would encourage everybody to read the report. Like we do look at academic research, but we try to make the report as accessible uh, a, a, as possible because our view is, look, policymakers should be making decisions based on uh, information and not just sort of gut feel. So I'm hopeful as, you know, BC government or the federal government starts to deal with the really, the, the really large issues we do have in the housing market, that they do so in uh a, you know, sort of a scientific data way-based way, uh, way, rather than simply just going on gut feel, because, you know, it might, it, might, it might feel good, but, you know, you can have unintended consequences, and we'd all like to avoid those. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, and uh, I hope we, we, we can talk again sometime soon. Oh, I look forward to it. Well, I'd like to once again thank all of our guests, Mike Moffitt, Brendan Ogmanson, and Dr. Paul Harrison for joining us on this episode and sharing their knowledge. I hope you learned something new, and if you did, please share this episode with your colleagues and networks. This is a conversation and a topic that will continue, and we will be sure to keep you informed. In the meantime, stay tuned for the latest from BCREA by following BCRA on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And I thank you again for listening. Uh, Happy holidays and a happy new year, and we'll talk to you again soon.